G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Our focus today is back on the fall of Afghanistan and the way the world is changing as the Islamic world feels emboldened by the victory of the Taliban and what appears to be the humiliation of the United States and its allies. We might even include ourselves in there. Well, incidents of terror are returning in major Western cities. Australia's terror threat advice remains on probable. We're taking things a shade deeper today and asking what went wrong in the nation-building plans of the Americans for the nation of Afghanistan. What is the root cause of the failure to build a new nation? And we'll talk about the fledgling Christian church in Afghanistan and whether it can survive. Our special guest through this coming hour is Dr. Mark Jury. Mark is a senior research fellow at the Arthur Jeffrey Centre for the Study of Islam at Melbourne School of Theology. He's also a fellow of the Middle East Forum and he's director of the Institute for Spiritual Awareness. Mark writes and speaks on linguistics, Islam, Christian-Muslim relations and religious freedom. He is our special guest and no doubt we'll get a chance to talk about his most recent book too, which is called The Quran and Its Biblical Reflexes. Uh, Dr. Mark Jury, a special welcome back to 2020. Uh, Thank you, Neil. It's great to be with you again. Uh, You know, Mark, on Friday, I'm just, my mind is running to a conversation I had about the way the world is changing with the rise of China. But today we're talking about the way the world is changing with the fall of Afghanistan. I wonder whether you've got some big picture thoughts for us as we talk about what's happened in Afghanistan and how that's contributing to these huge changes we're seeing around the world right now. Yes, it's a it's a, uh, a watershed moment, I think. I think the fundamentals are, are much the same as they've been in recent decades. But this is a real rallying point for the um, Islamic revivalists who want to restore the caliphate and and the glory of of Islam. Um, I think, in similarly, the uh, the fall of the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, the um, their, their withdrawal was another one. And the, one of the first books that was banned in Australia, Islamic radical books, was called "Join the Caravan." And, and in the introduction to that, it made the statement that. Um, the the jihadis, the mujahideen, had defeated one of the world's great powers, the Soviet Union, and uh, very soon the other powers of the world would follow as well. So I think um, this we we already know that the defeat of the Americans, as it were, in in um, in, in Afghanistan by the Taliban has uh, has stimulated a whole raft of similar um, calls from throughout the Islamic world. Uh, you know. We've defeated uh, Russia, we've defeated the Soviet Union, we've defeated America, 
uh, nothing can stop us now. The only way forward is is jihad. So it's 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 given a big uh, leg up to that to that ideology. Mark, I mentioned in the introduction the victory of the Taliban in Afghanistan appears to be the humiliation of the U.S. and its allies. Now Australia is very firmly an ally of the U.S. From the point of view of Islamists around the world, uh, not just the Taliban in Afghanistan, and seeing that humiliation, Australia's there, right there in the mix, isn't it? Yes, they would regard us as one of the defeated nations. They not only defeated America, but they defeated all of America's allies as well. And um, that does give the um, Islamic radicals hope that they can continue the battle and won- win more victories against us and against other other nations that have been involved in that process. And so, as we are one of the allies, uh, where does that put us when it comes to this struggle, this jihad? You say that the Islamists now are emboldened in jihad because having won the victory in Afghanistan, they press on with their, uh, their cause. Uh, where does that leave Australia in that? Are we at threat? When I mentioned in the introduction, Australia's terror threat advice, it remains on probable. Uh, where does that leave us in their thinking? I don't think we're any more target now uh, that we've left Afghanistan than we were before while we were there. Um, The fact that we were part of, from the Islamic perspective, part of an occupying uh, force uh, did bring us, cause us to be a target. It's a reason to incite a young radical to, um, to do an act of jihad against Australians. So I don't think that's any less now. Um, I don't think we're more of a target now than we were before. But the point is rather that um, those that believe that jihad is the way to establish the glory of Islam have been greatly emboldened uh, and encouraged by by this event. And um, and that will incite people and incite a new generation to give them hope. You know, we've defeated America. You know, what, what will stop us from... Um, quite a uh, quite a lot of the, uh, the statements that have been coming out of the Islamic world have been along the lines of, you know, this proves that jihad is the way to re-establish Islam. So there's a battle going on within Islam for, uh, you know, re-establishing the glory of Islam through warfare or trying to revive Islam just through Sharia implementation and, uh, you know, spiritual renewal. And this particular victory um, does give an impetus and encouragement to those that say the best way forward is is jihad. So that that causes risks for us as a nation. Well, a wonderful privilege for us today to hear your insights, Mark Jury, because as a Christian minister of the gospel, but an expert on Islam, getting your reflections on perhaps what went wrong over 20 years of the Afghanistan war and uh, what the causes of the sorts of failures might be in the aspirations of the Allies to uh, give strength to a nation to to build on its own and resist uh, those sorts of pressures from the Taliban. So I wonder whether, if I ask you a very general type of a question, you know, what went wrong? Because that was 20 years, and it seemed to go by so quickly for those who are not actually fighting the war in Afghanistan, but 20 years and a failure. What went wrong, Mark? Well, America had had some success in the past in nation building, in Japan, in South Korea, uh, and in Germany. And in the cases of Germany and um, Japan, 
Those two nations had been absolutely catastrophically defeated with massive casualties. And, um, you know, America, uh, Germany was just completely shattered. Uh, so that's different from Afghanistan. The Americans went in and quickly conquered the country. It wasn't, it, they didn't, it, it wasn't destroyed by war at the time. Secondly, and I think even more importantly, um, the Islamic Sharia fundamentally rejects non-Muslim rule. It's, it's not permissible for a, an, from an Islamic perspective for a non-Muslim state or, 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 or ruler to rule over an Islamic territory. And wherever that dynamic is set up, wherever there's occupation of um, Islamic populations by non-Muslim leadership, um, this is considered to be uh, a trigger for jihad, and and particularly particularly occupation, uh, military occupation by an infidel army. In in Islamic law, um, this is uh, it, there exists what's called a communal obligation, an individual obligation on every Muslim to go for jihad, if uh, Islamic territory is occupied by infidels, and it's quite ironic because the Americans in Iraq and in Afghanistan introduced. Uh, established constitutions which declared that Sharia was the so sort of the dominant guiding light of the whole legal system, but but the the problem was that to follow the Sharia, um, the very presence of non-Muslims running the country was unacceptable, and and therefore I think it was always going to fail. America was never going to be able to overturn that fundamental principle of Islam that infidels can't rule an Islamic country. So uh, I think there was a lot of naivety uh, in the West. Um, there's naivety about the importance of theology in Islamic context. There's naivety about the human beings as well. Um, and that's, that's another factor. So Americans thought that, you know, human beings are basically all the same. We have the same aspirations. All you have to do is just get rid of obstacles to human progress, such as discrimination or inequality. And then everyone will kind of burst out into this kind of renaissance of, of freedom and, and joy to be able to progress. Um, but that's the, it underestimates the reality of sin and also the, the power of the religious idea of Islam and the Sharia law to shape culture. And you, you can't, it's a multi-generational project to shape a culture that profoundly that it would welcome you know, a, a liberal Western concept of democracy. It's, it, it just was never going to work. So when you have occupying infidel forces, uh, the non-Sharia uh, believing, non-Islamic forces, and this includes our Australians, and some will say, well, that's not Christian, that's secular uh, in, in uh, forces who are occupying there. But it's the same as being ruled by infidels if they're occupying forces on board, because from what I understand, the government that was being set up in Afghanistan was also under Sharia. So was it a different version of Sharia that they were trying to govern under than what the Taliban thought was good? Yes, they would have um, implemented Sharia as part of the national legal system of Afghanistan, but but it wasn't uh, strict Sharia. It was modified according to um, the, the requirements of the occupying forces as well. I mean, the reality is the government in Afghanistan was corrupt uh, and it was also sponsored by the Americans. You had this huge amount of money flowing into the country. Um, this was not a, a system that was set up with the sole purpose of implementing Islam on the earth. It was 
it was a system set up to balance a whole number of different priorities and one of these was the the americans and the occupying forces agenda in in that country so and certainly there are many aspects of the islamic sharia that were not being implemented under um infidel occupation you know they they weren't stoning adulterers they weren't cutting off hands of thieves um they weren't they were allowing women to be um have a, a considerable degree of freedom which the strict islamic sharia does not permit um and and so there's a whole they had women in in leadership in in they had politicians who were women i mean this is not acceptable to a strict islamic sharia um framework which the taliban have been promoting so so yeah it wasn't it wasn't acceptable um version of islam and even if it had been the problem is that in the perception of everybody the infidels were in control and that that is fundamentally uh unacceptable from islamic from a sharia perspective well even in the media today it's reported women in kabul are told to stay home only allowed to work when there can't be a replacement by a man on friday the taliban shut down the women's affairs ministry replacing it with a ministry for the propagation of virtue and the prevention of vice a biblical perspective on life culture and current events this is 2020 on vision christian radio our talk back line open 1-800-316-316 316. you might like to join in our conversation today as we talk about the fall of afghanistan and what's changing in the world as a result of that fall our special guest is dr mark jury he's a senior research fellow at the arthur jeffrey center for the study of islam at melbourne school of theology mark let me ask you about something that it is confusing for a lot of christians uh, the idea that there is another form of law that the Uh, that the islamic people uh, have uh, under their uh, under their guidance called sharia and uh, no doubt there are even smaller enclaves here in australia that have their own version of sharia even though it's not official law here but i wonder whether you can give us an explanation as to what sharia law actually is yes the the arabic word sharia mean, means a path and the, the basically the idea is that Sharia is the pathway that um a believing Muslim should walk upon. It's not just what we consider law, but it's all the principles of being a properly observant Muslim, but including law because Islam doesn't separate um religion from state and religion from law. It integrates military, you know, um uh religion, uh governance and all into one, under one heading. and it's really based on the, the certainly the edicts in the Quran but also the life and the example of Muhammad and a lot of islamic law consists of detailed rules based on Muhammad's practice for example Muhammad said when you go into a room you should put your right foot first so you enter the room with the right foot and that's a, an example of an islamic principle Muhammad uh commanded the wearing of beards so uh, uh you know observant muslim men will often wear beards he he commanded the covering up of women so that that comes from his example so um yes as islamic law is uh, uh, or the sharia the pathway which includes law is everything all the rules and principles that a muslim should follow in in order to be rightly guided in order to be on the right track to heaven and in order to please um their master who is who is allah the 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 problem with that is that um there are lots of provisions in islamic law that are in conflict with 
contemporary ethical standards and with um, Western law. So when you say uh, stoning adulterers and cutting off hands of someone who's a thief, uh, those are the sorts of things that date back, you know, 1,400 years uh, to a time when those things appeared to be the right way to have a, a law. But those things continue on because of Sharia and, uh, and the teachings of Muhammad. Yeah, so Muhammad himself... Um, uh, instructed his followers to stone adulterers. And um, the first sermon that was ever preached after Muhammad's death said uh, it was announced that they should never forget to stone adulterers. Um, and the cutting off the hands of thieves is from, from the Quran. So what's been happening around the world is that um, Islam has been facing a kind of crisis in that it's uh, it's been declining in, in that Muslim civilization has been in trouble for many centuries and the Europeans, the West, um, was rising. Their star was rising and and Muslims have, have uh, been appalled at this and concerned about it. And their solution has been the reason why we're not successful is that we're not pleasing Allah. And if only we please him more, then we would rule the world again. So or we'd be dominant again and, and Islam would be glorious. So. The reason why they believe that's not happening is they haven't been Sharia compliant. They haven't been following the way of Islam properly. So uh, the solution to Islamic decline has been the Sharia revival, the restoration of strict Islam. And so you'll, you'd see all over the Islamic world, women have been covering up, uh, whereas in the earlier in the 20th century, there'd been a relaxation of a lot of Sharia codes. But the Islamic revival, which has sort of peaked in, in recent decades, has called for stricter Sharia. And certainly in Australia, there'd be uh, Muslims would vary enormously. Some would be not observant and others would be advocating for very strict Sharia women to be covered completely in accordance with Islamic law. And, and the call for jihad is also part of that Sharia revival because jihad fighting against infidels is part of Sharia too. And, and the call for people to to go to war is part of this call to revive strict and pure Islam so that Allah will look favourably upon Muslims and they'll be successful again. Mark, is there a debate within Islam? It's a little like, you know, will the real Islam please stand up? Because some say the Taliban is not real Islam. Does the Taliban qualify to be real Islam? Uh, how do you actually define what real Islam is? Well, that's a very good question, Neil. And there is dispute and debate amongst Muslims. So um, there is, within Islamic tradition, there, there, there are schools of Islamic law. They're called the, the Mathab. And these schools have, uh, you know, agreed um, decisions about lots of questions uh, about law and practice. And these decisions have, have were established in the Middle Ages after centuries of contemplating Muhammad's example and teaching. And by and large, they still stand. So if you were studying Islam at one of the great Islamic universities like Al-Azhar in, in Cairo, um, you would be taught all these principles that, that have applied for centuries. And in Islamic states, there are also... Um, uh, Muslim leaders, the, the Grand Muftis, as they're called, or Muftis who who provide rulings on Islamic issues. And these these people together um, have an association which has been set up by the Organization for Islamic Cooperation, which is like a UN of Muslim states. And, and this, these, their leaders, Sharia leaders throughout the Muslim world meet periodically and they pass rulings 
on on issues in order to guide Muslims. Islam's a system of guidance. So there's lots of guidance out there that's been provided. But to give you an example, um, some years ago, this council of the leaders of Sharia uh, experts around the Muslim world produced a, a ruling um, that it was permissible for a man to lock his wife away, to, to fortress her and control her movements. And so that teaching is, very, is a kind of mainstream teaching. Now, this doesn't mean that it's unopposed. And Islam is under a lot of pressure about its treatment of women, about freedom of speech, about freedom of religious choice. Um, and there are certainly issues are debated very heavily, issues like female circumcision and um, polygamy. Uh, these, are, these are, you know, there's a lot of disagreement amongst Muslims. But nevertheless, there is a kind of orthodoxy, a mainstream view on all these issues. And I, I think the Taliban would be in line with the mainstream view. It's just that they're very, they want to be rigorous in implementing it. And, and that is um, distressing to many people to see. Okay, taking calls, 1-800-316-316 to join our conversation. Let's take a call from Jonathan in Perth. Hello, Jonathan, welcome. Yeah. Hello, Neil. Hey, Jonathan, what are your thoughts? Yes, we I say something about uh, what will, uh, why is it called uh, we are non-honored, Islamic religion or terrorists or whatsoever, jihadists, or the same. Let's look at, for example, the constitutional thing that our people created to, to go against the Bible. They are even <coughs> opening the way for God to give all up. Because it said in Romans, I think chapter 8, if we are stubborn, God will give us reprobate mind and turn all to our own desires. So even if we are not Muslim, we we'll go against the Bible, we we'll go against God's plan. So God will give us all. And then open the door even for the enemy to invade us. So not only the Muslim. Jonathan, interesting insight there and uh, bringing a contrast uh, from uh, Romans chapter 8 there. Uh, any thoughts here for Jonathan? I'm not sure you pick up everything. Uh, Jonathan's got a fairly strong accent, but your thoughts here... Uh, yes, I, I think Jonathan's absolutely right. I mean, the real uh, enemy for Christians is um, is Satan. You know, as as Paul says, we don't struggle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities of this dark age. And and sin is a reality. I mean, I think Christians need to have a humility and awareness of their own capacity for sin and and for the capacity of evil to arise in any nation. And actually, I think that's one of the the strengths of the Christian tradition is that we do acknowledge the reality of sin. And that's why there's a separation of powers in the Western democratic tradition, because we, because of human sin, we don't want to concentrate power all in one person. And that's actually really interesting because it's a, it's a difference with Islam. Islam uh, concentrates powers in, in, in one or two people, and it doesn't acknowledge the, the, the depth of human sin. Islam believes that everyone's born pure and innocent, and all they need is some right right guidance to keep them on the track. But, I mean, it's very interesting in Iran when they had the Iranian revolution and strict Islam was introduced. Within a short period of time, all the ayatollahs and religious leaders tended to become quite corrupt. You know, the the, the implementation by the state of strict Islam didn't make people um, immune from corruption and, and abuses of all kinds. So I think my friend is right, but I think it's also important for Christians to understand the ideas, religious ideas, be aware of their consequences and to be able to discuss and debate them. 
Jonathan in Perth, thank you so much for your insight today. 1-800-316-316 to join our conversation. Not far out from news. If we're illustrating this point, uh, when we talk about the way Australia treats women, that's a contrast to where the Islamists are treating women, what we're seeing now in Afghanistan. Is that testimony to our Christian roots, Mark, that Australia treats women rather differently? Oh, I think it is. I think Paul's principle... I mean, I understand that women have been oppressed in Western societies and and not treated equally. And the issue of patriarchy is genuine. But nevertheless, the situation of, his, of Muslim women in Sharia-compliant societies is far worse than anything the West has systematically dreamt up. I mean, Muslims in, in the 18th, 17th century that visited Europe were absolutely shocked at the respect with which women were treated at that time in Europe. And um, it's, it's, it's really uh, incredibly damaging, the, the impact of Sharia upon women. It's one of the sort of great untold and poorly understood stories. I, that, that is a huge subject all in itself. Even the idea, for example, that your father, your grandfather can determine and control who you marry. Um, and they have this guardian's rights over you. Over you over Mark, we body. might have to pick up some more of these thoughts after the news. You mentioned it briefly in the first part of our conversation, suggesting there might be a crisis within Islam. And with the victory of the Taliban, one might say, well, is a crisis alleviated for Islam there? But what are your thoughts around the idea of crisis within Islam in general? Yes, Neil, it's a very important issue. I mean, the, the big crisis was the decline of the Muslim world and the rise of Europe and, and of the West. And that caused a lot of soul searching. And, and as I explained, the solution that basically all the revivalist movements, including the Taliban or Al-Qaeda or the Muslim Brotherhood, the solution they came to is if only we are more truly observant of Sharia and restore it as Muhammad had given it to us, uh, or Allah had given it to us through Muhammad, then we will be successful again. And you have all these revival movements. Um, but the second crisis, that's that's the first crisis, but there's another crisis, and that is that whenever a group of Muslims have a, a fair shot at Im- implementing strict Sharia, there's an Islamic um, kind of coup and the country falls under stricter Islam, then it's it's a failure. It's not successful. So Iran is an example. Uh, the, nine, the end of the 70s, the Iranian Islamic Revolution, the outcome of that is that many, many young Iranians born after that, after, say, 1980, hate Islam because they've, they've seen the impact of strict Islam. The Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt uh, took over saying Islam was the solution, but within a year, the, the, the people of Egypt were groaning and complaining and, and they cheered when the army overthrew the Muslim Brotherhood. So, And there have been a whole series of these um, failed Islamic Sharia uh, experiments. Utopia is promised, but dystopia comes. And that's causing a a really very fundamental uh, crisis of confidence within Islam. Now, some people are responding to that by doubling down on the jihad, doubling down on the strict Islamic revival. But many others are are leaving Islam. And and that's why in Germany, there are churches that are full of uh, converts from Islam who've, who've come as refugees from Iraq and Syria, they said, if if that's if ISIS is true Islam, then we want to really want to leave. And so, what, that's actually one of the the, the the loss of confidence in Islam during due, due to the failure of the solution 
to the first crisis, the failure of strict Islam, is one of the things that's driving uh, conversion of hundreds of thousands of Muslims who are leaving Islam at the, at the present time. Well, with victory in Afghanistan, uh, no doubt there would be some uh, excitement about a turning around of that crisis within Islam, as you say, uh, Islam doubling down on jihad. And if we were to bring ourselves into the conversation here, Australians or Western nations, and there's some suggestion that the West is in decline and moving away from its Christian roots that have given it strength to resist this idea of jihad over the centuries, where does that leave us in the West if the West is in decline and there may be, even though a crisis in Islam, a doubling down on jihad? Yes, and look, I think Afghanistan's in a lot of trouble because the Taliban won't find it easy to manage the country. They they won't reinstitute the education system that's needed and the freedoms that are needed for a healthy society. And they'll need a lot of help, but who will help them is another question, whether they'll be amenable to it. So um, the, the future looks grim for Afghanistan. In the West... Um, I think one of our biggest challenges in, in the West is that we've lost uh, sight of, uh, I would say, Christian foundations. And let me just give you one example. Um, in the, as I mentioned earlier, in the Christian understanding, human beings um, have an inclination to sin and you, you need to build in checks and balances to really protect society against its own members. <laughs> um, however, the, the contemporary secular ideology of the West um, denies the reality of sin and sees human beings as basically good. And uh, there's a widespread belief in progress. That is, as time passes, we will get wiser and more more ethical and do better and better. Um, people speak about being on the right side of history, which means that we think that future, we hope that future generations will smile on us because they'll be so much better judges of righteousness than we are. Um, and this view of belief in human progress, belief in the perfectibility of human beings through, through correct state structures and education is, is fundamentally flawed. And it's, it's producing a kind of disintegration in the West. I think, I think we've got a, what I call a false anthropology, a false understanding of what it is to be human. And one of the, the, one of the mistakes we've made is that we believe that human being human is defined by how you construct your identity and basically the choices that you make, um, whether it's sexual or gender or other choices, um, it's sort of very consumerist. We, we are what we consume. We're, we're defined by our ability to choose things. And this is, I think, going to produce a lot of disintegration in the West and loss of, it's already producing a loss of confidence in, in government. Um, and, and it's also not sustainable. I mean, you don't achieve human perfection by just through improvements in government processes or improvements in social structures, you, you still have the problem of human sinfulness. And, and that is not going to go away. In fact, we become more vulnerable to human sin if we deny its existence. And that was the problem in, in, in communist Russia. You know, they, they believe that the you know, utopia was just around the corner. And based on that, uh, most horrendous human rights abuses could be practiced because of this overriding belief in in the in the in the in the perfect future just ahead, um, and I think there's a, there's a real danger for us. So the, there's a loss of confidence in the West. Um, there's a loss of confidence in itself. There's a lot of fear. 
um, there's a loss of a, a shared narrative about what it is to be human and how to live in the world. And Christians are finding themselves increasingly a, um, an, a minority sort of out of step with the, with the ideological currents of the age. And then there's another factor as well, which exists alongside that. And that is that the West is losing the edge in technological innovation. And, uh, and for example, China is investing a huge amount in uh, artificial intelligence, in 5G technology, and, and the, the dominance of the West that's been built on knowledge and education is also under threat. So I think we have real, really difficult times ahead. We've got a lot of um, confusion, a lot of ideological confusion, and I don't think we're in a great position to really resist jihad, you know, resist the calls for stricter Islam. And, you know, in the 60s, secularists and atheists thought that Islam, that religion was finished, that it was just going to fade away quietly. And there's still a lot of people that believe that and they act like that. Um, but, but in fact, we're in the century of religion and resurgent Islam is going to be a major force in the decades ahead. It's just not going to go away. Uh, and I think also Christianity is rising too, but not necessarily in the West. You know, there's very strong Christian communities in, in many countries that have been growing rapidly. And so the whole kind of the ideological landscape of the world is shifting around us. And and it and it's both brings opportunities, but also uncertainties and insecurities as well. Uncertainties, along with opportunities, 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation today. Our special guest is Dr. Mark Jury. Let's take another call. Lino is in South Australia. Hello, Lino. Welcome. Hello, Neil. Hey. Uh, see if, uh, if I can explain it in a, uh, as quick as I can. Uh, Women are very powerful in many ways. They are resilient uh, with, with patience and everything else. But the, the male dominance has always been uh, an aggression, in, in, uh, even from the beginning of religions with the Christianity, and I'm a Catholic myself, that always by suppressing people, they make them afraid to speak out because of the consequences. The question I have is, we're in 2021. Why are religions that have come up don't pay taxes? They make more money than everybody else. And why don't they stop these people that uh, want to be aggression against women? They should be eliminated straight away, not give them any quarter at all. That's how you treat people equal. Lino, uh, you know, there's an interesting position you're coming to from uh, from where you are. Mark, a thought or two for Lino and... And his thoughts? Yeah, so this is a really interesting thing that for centuries in the um, English tradition, the state has privileged religion and it's assumed that religion is charitable and um, religious causes are generally for the common good. And we still have that system. So religions have tax benefits in Australia and, and in the UK and the Canada and US. Um, but there's increasing hostility to religion. There's increasing dislike of religion. I think a lot of it is not is not always well informed. I mean, Christians have contributed enormously to um, this, the common welfare. Um, education was developed by the church, you know, before the state picked it up. Um, and very often, Christians are on the front line of caring for those who are most vulnerable in our society. And one of the problems is we are at risk, uh, especially. I think Islam has made this complex as well because. 
uh, not all Islamic, um, you know, Islam, for example, warfare is part of Islam, jihad is part of Islam, and it's hard to sustain the idea that religions are charitable if um, one component of, of a religious ideology is is militant. Um, so we are kind of in, a, in the middle of a crisis of thinking, what is the religion? How do we understand religion? One view that's sort of part of the secular understanding is that religion is just a personal expression. It's a personal belief. And as long as you keep it to yourself, um, then there's no problem. Uh, but it, that's not how religion works, I don't think. Religion is transformative. It, it changes people's lives. It, it calls people to, 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 to repent, to, to find a new way forward. And um, this affects everything. So we, we, we are, you know, that Lino's comment really reflects the crisis that we are in at the moment in the West about religion and how does it fit in and how do religions, religious perspectives fit. I mean, I think it's quite, um, he was almost calling for violence and persecution of people because of their faith. And I think we'll see more of these sorts of calls. And we've seen quite a lot already. Um, so we have difficult times, I think, for people of faith. I, this is why, I mean, having heard lots of people like Lino over the years, this is why I think Christians should be training their, their flock to be to resist persecution, to have a sort of backbone in the face of opposition and, and challenge uh, in, 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 the, in the public square. Lino, thank you so much for your call. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. You might want to have your say, as I often will say, a question, a comment, uh, even a critique for our conversation. Let me bring you back to uh, the Taliban in Afghanistan. And, of course, there are other Islamic movements. Uh, you mentioned earlier Al-Qaeda. Uh, there's movements in Africa, Al-Shabaab. Uh, there's this one that was a newcomer on most people's radar, ISIS-K. And uh, the thought here that the Taliban was not as strict as ISIS-K. Any thoughts here where, uh, where even stricter movements than the Taliban come into the big picture? Is this something that is invented uh, so that it seems more palatable to be doing dealings with the Taliban? What are your thoughts here, Mark? No, it's a real ph- it is a real phenomenon. So remember the original crisis is that Islam was in decline and the solution was Sharia implementation. And then you have this situation where the revivalists who are re- reviving the Sharia, they compete with each other for being the truest uh, implementation of Islam, the strictest. In fact, there's a tradition of Muhammad where he said that there'll be many splinters, you know, groups amongst all the Muslims, and but only one of them will be the true one. And if you're not the right one, <laughs> there's this teaching in Islam that if you're not on the right track, you're, you're almost worse than apostate. You, you know, you're a you're a hypocrite, you're, 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 uh, and so this triggers, there's a potential in Islam to turn Muslims against Muslims if they disagree um, on Islam. So ISIS-K would be even stricter in imposing the Sharia, and they would say, no, the Taliban are not the genuine true party of God, we are the true party, and, and they want to prove that by showing that they go to do jihad, to, do, to fight when the Taliban's unwilling to do, to do that. So for them, that's a matter of pride. Um, and I think the Taliban has a, has a challenge on its hand because it's got hands, because it'll, these groups that will challenge it will, you know, will be around. And um, it's one thing, you know, if you've got the, the infidel Americans there, all the radicals can agree that they're the enemy. But once they're gone, 
you've got the problem of uniting the country and and the ideology of jihad and ever more perfect sharia to get an ever more perfect utopia this is a very destabilizing way of thinking about politics and about islam and it's uh, it doesn't bode well for the stability and peacefulness of, of Afghanistan in the future. So predictions into the near future and maybe even the medium future where you've got uh, you know, Islam that, as you say, is not likely to become more secular and uh, easier to deal with by the West, but competition of who can be the strictest. And so if you don't have the West in Afghanistan, uh, then this might amplify the idea of competition as to who can be most strict and that actually does, uh, you know, but doesn't bode well for the future. It doesn't. And Muslim groups are already fighting each other, like Iran and and the Saudis have the proxy wars going on in places like Yemen, and you've got the standoff between Shiite and Sunni um, in Syria and, and, and Iraq. And, and these groups are all ideologically or theologically vying for supremacy. They're vying to prove that they have the, the they have God's ear and they are on the right track and and those sorts of conflicts are sort of worse now than they than the, than they've been for some time so it's difficult I mean another another problem is that when you when you have this strict Sharia implementation program and you're willing to go for jihad those groups tend to turn their attention against Islamic governments because if you actually run a country you have to compromise you have to be pragmatic you have to enter into alliances with non-Muslim states. And the, the the purest radical movements don't like this. So um, many countries like Saudi Arabia, they um, they they are really concerned about the jihadi movements. And it's ironic because they've been promoting the the Sharia revival and strict Islam for decades, but they've incubated forces like Bin Laden that are actually um, kind of uh, have vowed to destroy them. So. Yeah, the Muslim world is 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 facing lots and lots of difficulties and and and, and struggles, and uh, it's going to be hard for Afghanistan to 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 make its way forward in the midst of all these pressures. We're in for tough times ahead, Mark. If we spend these last few minutes of our conversation, perhaps coming around some of the things you've thought about in your latest book. Where you've been fascinated by the question as to why there's so much biblical material in the Quran. There's been a popular idea in some thinking, and usually people who are not connected with church and have no idea about faith, that somehow or other uh, Christianity is related to Islam, even though Islam didn't come until the 7th century. Uh, and treating Islam like it's a heresy of Christianity. But somehow or other, in saying all of those things, trying to treat them all like they're all sort of lumped in with one religious common cause, which is clearly not right. I wonder whether you've got some thoughts here about uh, the Quran, and you've written about biblical material that's contained in the Quran, and talking about connections with Christianity or indeed with Judaism what are your thoughts about where it fits uh, in, yes. a, in in this in this uh, you know in in the way that it all works out well the idea um, that Islam was a kind of Christian heresy a deviation from a Christian origin is very very old and that's been a kind of almost mainstream Christian view John of Damascus had that view it's been reiterated many times and it, it it shapes the the thoughts of many christians and it also goes hand in hand with a view in of a sort of abrahamic religions the idea that judaism christianity and islam are all kind of on the same family tree and they they belong together um and they share 
uh, a common core of, of faith and practice even. Um, and I think it's a fundamental error. I think Islam is, uh, it uses a lot of material from the Bible, from Judaism and Christianity, but it always repurposes it, reshapes it, and uses it in a very, very different way. Um, you know, a, a, sim- a symptom of that is in Islam, Jesus is called Isa al-Masih. Masih means Messiah. But actually, it doesn't really mean Messiah because it doesn't have any meaning in, in Islamic tradition. There's no concept of a Messiah um, or understanding of a biblical Messiah in Islam. So I, I wrote that book really to explore the standing of of biblical um, materials or concepts, people, personalities in the Quran. And I concluded that what what Islam has done is repurposed a lot of materials from the Bible, but but it uses them in a completely different way from their original context. It's as if, you know, Islam is not a church or a synagogue that was modified with a few extensions, like the Hagia Sophia um, Cathedral that became a mosque in, in Constantinople. What it is, it's more like, um, you know, a mosque or, or a church was dismantled and all the building materials were then taken and used to build a building with a very different ethos, a different ideology, a different purpose. So another way of putting this is that uh, Quranic theology doesn't inherit anything from biblical theology. This is a very big difference with Christianity and Judaism. Christianity inherits a lot of theology and liturgy and practice from Judaism. And in fact, it was centuries. The separation took a long time. But but Islam kind of starts afresh and and rebuilds itself using biblical reference points, but 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 giving them very different meanings. So I was um, really arguing in that book that again and again, core aspects of Christian theological understanding, especially biblical understanding, are not carried over into Islam. A good example, which I've been speaking of earlier, is the idea of human sin. Islam doesn't really have anything like the same concept of of human sin. It regards human beings as basically born uh, pure and and they can be corrected or guided um, to goodness. So basically the function of Islam is to provide guidance, to impose guidance on human beings so they can be on the right path. Um, I think the biblical perspective is, is uh, that human beings are inherently sinful and they need salvation, not guidance. They need forgiveness and reconciliation. So there's a kind of very fundamental difference in how the human person is viewed and, and what, what a good life consists of and how God uh, interacts with us. So, yeah, so I, I become over the years opposed to the idea of Abrahamic religions, Abrahamic faiths and the, the family tree of faiths. And I would say that Islam is... Um, it borrows a lot of material, but it doesn't inherit it. It's not on the same family tree. Well, Mark, you've written a number of books over the years, and there'll be some interest from listeners today hearing your wisdom and uh, looking to go things, take things a little deeper into some of your books. Uh, the latest one we've been mentioning today is called The Quran and Its Biblical Reflexes. Uh, you also won the award one year uh, for your book called The Third Choice. Uh, there's another book called Witch God and another Liberty to the Captives and Listeners. Uh, no doubt you might want to get a hold of some of Mark Jury's books. You can do so, markjury.com. 
That's Mark, D-U-R-I-E dot com, and you'll find Mark's books there, but you'll also be able to Google those and get a hold of them at online booksellers. Uh, the latest one, uh, the Quran and its biblical reflexes that uh, Mark's given some attention to there. Just before I let you go, Mark, uh, for people who want to do some further study, I mentioned that uh, you know, you're know uh, you uh, connected there with the Melbourne School of Theology, the Arthur Jeffrey Centre for the Study of Islam. Are there courses there that listeners today could connect with uh, to get a basic understanding of uh, these contrasts between our Christian faith and Islam and how to move forward? Yes, the, the Arthur Jeffrey Centre there at the Melbourne School of Theology offers a whole series of units, and you can do a master's course that's basically made up of uh, Islamic studies. Um, so you can take it to different levels, or you could just do a single unit. It's not expensive to audit a unit. Um, we have a, a range of different subjects. There's three, four staff there that are teaching who all have PhDs in Islamic studies. So I think it's one of the really unique centers in the world where, where there's a Christian perspective on Islam for really our vision is to equip the church for the for the times in which we live. Well, I don't think that Islamic study institutions are encouraging the study of Christianity, but uh, it certainly is the opposite when it comes to Christianity that is not afraid of shining a light on the studies and the understanding of Islam. Mark Jury just great getting your insights as always. Uh, Mark Jury, Senior Research Fellow at the Arthur Jeffrey Centre for the Study of Islam at Melbourne School of Theology. You can uh, Google Melbourne School of Theology, find out some details about that. MarkJury.com. And Mark, just wonderful getting your insights. Thanks so much for joining us today on 2020. It's great to be with you, Neil. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.